Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me this week is Phoebe Watson. Hello! And we are certainly taking this podcast on the road because we are coming to you at the moment from Rome. Very exciting. Yes, Phoebe and I are on holidays in Rome, although Phoebe will be leaving me shortly to go on to Japan. (laughs) I depart from my mad adventures. Yes, and I don't know whether it's part of my hope to make this a very deeply culturally enriched episode or just my lack of organisation that I didn't get a podcast recorded before we went. Well, we did also discuss the topic which was very appropriate for where we are. Yes. So this week's episode is going to be about architecture and Catholic architecture and buildings and how we understand uh, buildings as spaces from a Catholic point of view. So naturally, obviously, uh, it makes sense in some ways to come to Rome and talk about that. Yeah, we have just spent our last couple of days looking at the most amazing church buildings in the world. Well, speaking of the most amazing church buildings of the world, it's perhaps a little sad that it's also very fitting. We did actually choose this topic a while ago. Specifically, we were talking about it just before Holy Week. And I distinctly remember we talked about doing this episode and saying we should talk about Catholic architecture. And I said to Phoebe, oh, this is wonderful because I'm currently reading The Hunchback of Notre Dame and it's just got all of these incredible descriptions of architecture in it and we could totally use that. Right after that, I picked up my phone and saw that Notre Dame was on fire. Like yeah, it was it, like two days later. No, no. It was, was it not? It was a minute later. As in, I said it to you, I picked up my phone and Notre Dame was on fire. It was a really oh gosh, yes, you did. It was a really surreal experience for me. <laughs> yeah, because I kind of looked at you and was like, oh, I don't understand that. I can't compute. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a really kind of strange. I'd just been talking about it. I picked up my phone and Notre Dame was on Twitter and I was like, what's going on? And then it was on fire. So it is a bit sad that it's very fitting that we're talking about this topic. But like I said, it's sort of predated the terrible fire which thankfully didn't destroy the cathedral which is I consider something short of a miracle but yes so in all in all between news events and the eternal city this is a very fitting topic for us today. Yes it is. So I think I I will give a little bit of background which is that before coming to Rome I was incredibly sick with some food poisoning and So I have not got as much prepared for this episode as I would like, so I don't necessarily know exactly where we're going to go with this, but I think we should begin maybe with our terrific tour, the start of the trip, which was given by Elizabeth Lev, who was just unbelievably stunning and wonderful, and I am, you know, itching to buy all of her books right now. Yeah, Um, it was just the most amazing tour ever. Mm-hmm. And we had like one fairly meh tour and one pretty good tour mm-hmm. afterwards. Yes. but And I think we've both had other tours before that have been good. Yeah. But on comparison, like that stands out as an absolute mega highlight. I, I think the thing that really struck me was that the reason why I was maybe a little bit anxious about doing a tour is that because like we said I've been on tours before and the thing I often find with sacred architecture tours is that either it's one long theology lesson on things that I already know or it's an art history lesson that seeks to demean the sacred element of it. it this was something completely different because Elizabeth Lev has that incredible ability to marry the two and have such respect and understanding and knowledge about how religion and Catholicism and Christianity all have this place within the art history and within the architecture of these spaces and how both amplify each other and that it isn't one or the other. And I think that's the thing that we want to talk about most today, which is about how how we can marry those two spaces and, and what it means to give glory to God in a space. Yeah, how art and architecture are so intertwined and 
how particularly in these fabulous churches it's not oh you have the art and then you have the building mm -hmm. they are one and the same yeah and I think the thing that impressed me the most in the tour was weirdly not actually the churches although we did get to go see Santa Croce with the relics of the Holy Cross on the feast day of the finding of the Holy Cross that was incredible which <laughs> and it was also an unscheduled stop we had to take a detour and then Elizabeth Lev went mm, we'll just stop over there there's a reason we're doing it oh yes it's because it's the feast of the finding of the Holy Cross specifically for this church. Yeah, so that was very exciting and very moving. But this section of the tour that actually kind of fascinated me the most was the start where we went up the Capitoline Hill and then looked at the Roman Forum. But she was explaining how the piazza at the top of the hill used to face towards the Forum and had been moved and I think it was Michelangelo who did it wasn't it yeah it had fallen into disrepair yes and then they were redoing it and kind of trying to reinstate some of the Roman glory mm -hmm. but instead of just reinstating it looking out over the Roman forum mm -hmm. they turned it around so that it faced towards St. Peter's to represent the conversion of Rome from paganism to Christianity and that you kind of going from the pagan to the Christian, mm -hmm. but that you're not, it, there's a continuity there as well. Yeah, to me that was just this incredible idea of like turning something on its axis so that it faces Christianity. And it was, I just found that really moving and very, very inspirational that architecture could be so representative of a whole civilization re-evaluating itself and reassembling itself towards a particular set of values and goals. Yeah, and that they do that without putting in a church. It's not yeah. that they built another church there in the place of where the Temple of Jupiter was facing mm -hmm. towards St. Peter's. Mm -hmm. They put in steps where the city wall was mm -hmm. to show that now new accessibility and they have two Roman gods facing towards St. Peter's. Yeah. And that ability of Christianity at that time and, and Catholicism to take what has been good. And I think that's what comes through so much in Rome is this ability to take what was good and then orient it towards Christ. And we see that with the missionaries as well. Like I think it, it comes up in so many different ways. The, the edict when they were going to Ireland and England was baptize their holy wells and their shrines, you know, just keep their sacred spaces that are imbued with meaning and are soaked with prayer, let's say, and say, well, that, that is a good thing. And now let's take that and orient it towards Christ. Yeah, but I think even the more fascinating thing about this one is that it's also rebuilding. Mm. So it's a pagan culture that has fallen into disrepair. Like yeah. you have the ruins of the forum. Yeah. But then you're actually reinstating something pagan that was good mm -hmm. and reorientating it. Yeah. That it's not even that what was pagan is there and you're just going, oh, that's actually this. Mm. Or we can make that holy in this way. But you're rebuilding it. Yeah. And she was explaining how Castor and Pollux were these gods that were so foundational to Rome and were about fraternity and about working together and using people coming together to create something better. And man becoming God. And man becoming God and God becoming man because of their stories of... They're just man becoming God. Yes, sorry, of course, man becoming God. And the idea that there is something to be gained from the sharing and interaction and that like working together you can become a deity yeah and then she sort of said you know like these two jewish guys walked into the Roman yeah, a fisherman and a tent maker walk in and say no you've got it wrong man doesn't become god god became man yeah and then how peter and paul become the new founding twins yeah because they die on the same day and are born again in heaven the same day Mm -hmm. that yep. was just like the most mind-blowing point of the entire thing it was so good it was really really incredible and how that represents itself 
in the architecture and in some ways because you've got St. Peter's right at the heart of Rome and then you've got St. Paul outside the walls like almost like they're encircling the whole thing that like wherever you go you're going to hit these two figures which is so cool and striking. Yeah but I think it also makes a lot of sense for us in why they're always portrayed together. Yeah. Like in St. John Lateran you have above the altar the two figures of Peter and Paul. Mm Mm-hmm together they're portrayed as the new founding twins in the art and the architecture as well yeah absolutely and I was just reading on about the theology of architecture and it was talking about how using architecture to express our theology has been a part of our imagery since the bible because of the way that we describe Peter as the rock we are the pillars Jesus is the stone that the builders overlooked or even in Revelation where it talks about the living stones of the heavenly Jerusalem and even just the fact that we understand things of like we are the church like we are a building so that there's this idea that our expression of God becoming man as we were saying is totally fitting in architecture that this is something that totally makes sense within our religious view to express ourselves through buildings because it's always been there in the scripture yeah that's a beautiful way of putting it and then also you've got from coming from judaism the importance of the temple Mm -hmm. and that whole idea of the structure and then jesus is the new temple Mm -hmm. which means that you can also recreate that in any space yes you're also not obliged to make it the same because you don't have to copy the Temple of Jerusalem and you're not obliged, even like, make it the same in the same scale. Like, you can have a tiny church of beautiful architecture. And I think there was another point, this creating of the beautiful spaces for the Mass and the idea that we make it as beautiful as possible for the Mass. Mm -hmm. But that we can do that in any space because we have the incarnation of the Eucharist. Yeah, that's so true. And I was just thinking that I think we're going to go on to discuss more about like specific examples of architecture and their sort of splendor or glory. But I know some people who actually don't find that kind of space the best space to pray. Mm -hmm. But just because something is maybe simpler or plainer doesn't mean it's not beautiful. It isn't the same as just saying like put it in like a, a bare room. Like we were lucky enough to have adoration just for our group in the church of saint philip neri last night and we were in one of the side chapels which was designed by borromini and it has all of these inlaid marble and it was super sumptuous and intense and beautiful but beforehand we were getting a tour of the rooms of saint philip neri and surrounding rooms of the church and i think phoebe and i our favorite part was we kind of like broke away from the group to sit in just the side oratory which was sort of wooden clad and had a painting yeah. but it like compared to let's say the sumptuous chapels that we were just about to go pray in i think it was actually the nuns chapel so it wasn't even the chapel of saint philip neri mm-hmm. it was like where the nuns now meet to pray yeah and it was just it was beautiful dark wood and they had like a veil over the tabernacle and, and they... in some ways the tabernacle was the most beautiful thing there because the whole square room Mm -hmm. faced into the tabernacle yeah and so there is a point that says that you can do simple small things with great precision and great beauty and great reverence and so in a simple space you still have something that is almost sumptuous even if it's simple and has that sense of reverence and beauty and awe and that moves you to the transcendent so i would like to preface to say that I'm not actually arguing that all spaces or even all sacred spaces need to be covered in gold or decorated to the hilt, which is actually something we're going to discuss later, but that even simple things can be done very reverently. Yeah, I think there is also a way of entering the sacred space as a pilgrim rather than as a tourist. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to do the first time you go in. Yeah. I think especially the first time we went into St. Peter's this trip, we were in quite a hurry because we were trying to get to the crypts underneath St. Peter's for Mass. Mm -hmm. So you come into this amazing, incredible, gigantic space of art Mm -hmm. and you're like, do-do-do-do-do, we have to get through. Yeah. Whereas the next day I went in and I didn't have a schedule. I didn't have anyone with me. And I'd seen, this is maybe my third time seeing it, so I wasn't 
on my phone trying to take pictures. It didn't yeah. need to be recorded. I was just able to enter it in like, I'm here to pray. Yeah. And that's actually what I'm hoping to do, uh, please God, for the next couple of days. I'm staying in Rome a couple of days after our group leaves, like you said, because the last time I came, I just remember being in these spaces and saying, I wish I just had the time to be really present. And it wasn't that, like, I was with my friends and they were all super ready to pray. We prayed at all of the churches. It wasn't just touristy for us. But at the same time, you can't necessarily take your time in the same way when you have a set number of days and, and like, you kind of want to cover a certain number of things. So I'm looking forward to that and hopefully it goes well. But And I think both of us have found we've taken almost no photos this trip. <laughs> and I think back on when I was here for the first time and I just took endless photos. And I try not to get too caught up in judging people for that because I really understand that impulse. And you see this beauty and you want to hold on to it. And, you know, it is something that is important. So you want to hold on to it. but And you want to be able to recapture that experience by knowing... I can get, in a certain way, we talk about you can get postcards of mm-hmm. these beautiful pieces of art which is a great way to keep them that's actually one of our favourite ways to because you can get a much better picture Yeah. but in a certain sense I can also kind of understand the idea of taking the picture in the hope of being able to recapture the experience that you had yourself Yeah. It just doesn't always work yes and so it's been very freeing to come this time where we've gone back to a lot of places that we've been before and even the new places I just haven't necessarily because maybe for the rest of the day I haven't been taking pictures it maybe hasn't been at the front of my mind to just go start taking pictures yeah the minute you're out of that that, like impulse Mm -hmm. it can be very freeing yeah yeah I think overall we should maybe talk a little bit about the need to enter into a reverential space and prayer because I think that's a discussion that comes up at least a lot with my secular friends which is about and certainly in the context of Notre Dame and people started like you know paying in you know hundreds of millions to restore it and why do you need these opulent spaces and do they contribute anything to your faith and the classics couldn't that just be used for the poor even though you know these churches are also for the poor (laughs) yeah it's like well actually you've got the most beautiful expressions of art Mm -hmm. in history and they're free yeah they're completely open to the public all you have to do is queue up and get through security yeah. The most some of these churches do is put, ask you to put in a euro donation to light up some of the side chapels. Yeah. I think I covered this a little bit with Matthias in the episode Restoring Catholic Weirdness about how when something is transcendently beautiful, which I think most people can agree, given we we see how many people go through all of these spaces every day in Rome, you know, I think it's telling that people don't queue up for buildings that are, I, I want to say more recent. I'm not just slandering all, because I'm sure there was plenty of ugly buildings in the past. They've just been destroyed now. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not trying to look at the world through rose-tinted glasses, but, you know, I don't know what building inspires that kind of dedication or awe that has been more recently built or built in a more modernist and pared-back style that is so kind of ubiquitous across architecture at the moment. Yeah, and I think it is very telling that in any of these spaces, they always have space set aside for prayer. So in any of the main basilicas, Mm -hmm. they'll have a side chapel with the Blessed Sacrament reserved, or sometimes full adoration, Mm -hmm. that's screened off and reserved for prayer. And they'll even have, like particularly in St. Peter's, they'll have a guard there going, no photos before you in, and you have to pretty much go, I'm going to pray with your hands together. (laughs) Please let me go pray. (laughs) But then they're very nice and they, they let you in. Yeah. Like, the first time we were there, because we had mass the crypts, then we'd come back up to the basilica, and there was a part of the basilica that I hadn't been in before because it had been closed the last time. But the only way you could get in was to go into confession. Like, they had confession boxes, and it was, like, if you were going in for confession, mm-hmm. that was where you went. Yeah. And it turns out I was looking for confession anyway. <laughs> because, like, two days before that, I'd been like, oh, I should really get confession before I do all this travelling, but I can't. I literally have no way to schedule that in. So, God, please give me a chance to get confession. Next morning, boom, there you go. Yeah, I think it's so important that those spaces 
continue to be sacred spaces and that's a big discussion that's come out of Notre Dame like oh it's cultural heritage oh it's you know Paris's history great it's why is it Paris's history because it's about God yes like the building doesn't exist without a concept of working towards something that was bigger than you and that those buildings only make sense in terms of orientating it towards the mass and yeah I think there's a big difference that we see between churches and museums, mm-hmm. which can be quite difficult to communicate in a certain sense. Yeah. Because like, you've got the Vatican museums, where actually even from St. Peter's, they've taken some of the great works of art mm-hmm. and preserved the originals in the Vatican museums and then done a replica yeah. in the basilica. Mm-hmm. So you can see the actual piece of art as it was with like proper lighting and preserved as it should be. Mm-hmm. in a like, space where you can see it. But you also then have to try and understand that piece of art, which is now in a museum, in the context where it was originally designed to be. Yeah. So like, there's one of the Raphael paintings, which is of the Transfiguration. Mm-hmm. They now have like a mosaic copy in one of the altars in St. Peter's. So it's meant to be an altarpiece. It's designed for the celebration of the Mass. And the tour I had of the Vatican Museums the last time I was in Rome, which, by the way, was by the the nuns who are the official tour guides of the Vatican Museums, and they're really good. So if you're looking for tours of the Vatican Museums, I think that's a really good place to try. But, yeah, it's an image of the Transfiguration, and she was just saying that you have to look at it in the context of an altarpiece. You have to understand the light of Christ coming out and almost like the circular light around Christ mm-hmm. as a reminder of what the Eucharist also is and what is happening on that altar. Yeah, absolutely. And I was saying the same thing about the Pieta. Now, obviously, anytime you see the Pieta, it's a moving experience. I don't think you could take away from that. But it makes so much more of a profound statement if you understand it as an altarpiece, which is what it was. And that description, I'm trying to think, it was it was someone someone famous who described it as Mary is like a mountain with Jesus flowing like a river down her. And there's that like long arm of Jesus pointing down. And in that context, it would be pointing towards the Blessed Sacrament. And even just that whole concept of Mary's offering of her sacrifice and Jesus's offering of his own sacrifice in the form of the Blessed Sacrament that is encapsulated in that piece that is so moving when you think of it in the context of the Eucharist. That's so beautiful. And that at that point Jesus is almost the table as well. That like, Yeah, it's almost an altar in itself. Yeah. Mary's lap is the altar. Yeah, absolutely. And so the context of those things amplifies their meaning. Because like we said, these things don't exist unless there is a purpose for them. And actually I looked up what Elizabeth Lev, she obviously was interviewed in the wake of the Notre Dame fires. And she said that much like the Great Pyramids of Giza or the Pantheon of Rome, Lev said Notre Dame stood as a testament to how humanity can create astonishing things when people direct their ingenuity to something outside themselves. It reminds us that we are greater than our brief mortal lives and the petty pursuits that fill it, she said. But when human beings dedicate themselves to the divine, the transcendent, the experience of God redeeming creation, they can make something sublime. Yeah, I think that's so telling that almost any building that's dedicated to humankind rather than the divine Mm -hmm. tends to just be less awe-inspiring. Even when you think of like the great palaces and like they have a massive grandeur in and of themselves, but they also... They don't have the same kind of hushed awe about them. Yeah. But they can be really moving as well. Like I would say that... It isn't just reserved for the sacred, but I think those kind of buildings made a lot more sense when people understood how to make sacred buildings. Yeah. Then there was a way to inform you on how to make impressive secular buildings as well. Yeah, Um, I remember I noticed in Prague a couple of years ago, we went to visit the castle mm -hmm. and there was a cathedral in the castle Mm -hmm. as well. And the cathedral was still perfectly intact and all of the pieces of art and in its full glory of art and architecture together. Mm-hmm. Whereas the castle, every time the king changed, all of the pictures were of the old kings and they stripped them out. <laughs> or, you know, maybe the dynasty changed or whatever. Mm-hmm. But 
they stripped it. Yeah. So the castle, which would have been full of tapestries and all sorts of pieces to make this space understandable mm-hmm. and like translate it for you, were gone. So you just had kind of a bare space that was meant to hold art and no longer did. Yeah. Because things had changed and it was gone. I think what informs this so well is the section that I was, when I found out that Notre Dame was burning, was the section that I was talking to Phoebe about, which if anyone has uh, has read The Hunchback of Notre Dame, I think it's interesting that the protagonist of The Hunchback of Notre Dame is in the title, except that it's Notre Dame and not The Hunchback. <laughs> and the book seems to be one third plot and two thirds a treatise on architecture, which I actually enjoy those sections a lot. But I did make Phoebe laugh one time because I listened to it on audiobook. Actually, I've just realised I haven't finished it because I. <gasps> you didn't finish it? No, because I had it allotted in for how many hours I had to listen to, and then I got sick and I just couldn't. Um, so I have that to look forward to. I can finish it in Rome. That might be slightly incongruent, but maybe appropriate. But I was listening to it on audiobook, like I said, and I was dry from my parents home to our flat in Dublin which is about an hour and a half drive and I arrived in and I said for the last hour and a half I have had a single description of Notre Dame and then Paris and that is all I got for that whole hour and a half of listening. (laughs) There is no plot, no dialogue, nothing except this long kind of tract about Notre Dame and and its surrounding environments. But I actually really enjoyed it. I actually think Hugo really brings out his own voice quite a lot when he's doing this. But the section that I was actually thinking for this podcast is a chapter called This Will Kill That. Yes, that was the one that you just handed to me this morning. You went, read now. You read this and then we'll record this podcast. And it's a long diversion, (laughs) essentially, where it had begun with Claude Frollo, who is reading a book of alchemy and looking out at his cathedral of Notre Dame. And he says... Specifically a book of alchemy published by the Gutenberg Press, like by the new printing press. Yes. And he says, the book will kill the edifice. Uh, Hugo then goes on to look into that phrase and says, on some level, you can read it as just saying that the press will kill the church, which I think is oddly prescient as well, Mm. that like we see now how the world consumes news and consumes media and consumes endless Twitter feeds and all of that and say, you know, the, the press has killed the church in the way that religiosity has diminished. But then he goes on to say, the other truth about that statement is that printing will kill architecture and that the arrival of the printing press and the wide availability of printed materials, the need for architecture to work as a language diminishes drastically. Yeah, that was incredible. We could just read out the entire essay, but I think we're only going to quote about half of it. Um, (laughs) But yeah, he kind of talks through how architecture was the expression of humankind in telling their stories. Yeah, um, I love how he breaks it down to even a stone is a letter and an arch is a hieroglyph and an arcade is a syllable, and which I just love that he would even like break it down that far. I'm going to read his introduction to this before okay. we go any further. Here was a premonition that human thought had advanced and in changing was about to change its mode of expression, that the important idea of each new generation would be recorded in a new way that the book of stone, so solid and enduring, was about to be supplanted by the paper book, which would become more enduring still. In this respect, the vague formula of the archdeacon had a second meaning, that one art would dethrone another art. It meant printing will destroy architecture. Yeah, it's a really fascinating section. I don't actually agree with everything that he says. I don't think anyone can look around Rome and look at the Berninis and say, Those are no good. But he essentially makes the point that after the Gothic era, that architecture falls into decline. Um, Rather, he says it starts imitating and loses its new expression. Yeah. Which I think, to me, is the more compelling a point to falling into decline. He doesn't particularly like the new expression, I think. Mm -hmm. But for us, things like New Romanesque or Mm Neo-Gothic or like imitating St. Peter's, For us, those have brought us great beauty 
in our own countries. Yeah. Um, and they brought some of the beauty of Rome home to us. Yeah. So I think in some ways we would disagree with his argument there. Yeah. But it still has the telling point in that, like, he talks about the transition between Romanesque and Gothic, and then kind of argues that the expressions after that aren't developments in the same way. Yeah, and the other aspect of it is that once architecture is not so foundational or so, like, he says it's tyrannical, that the arts that go into architecture are then freed. They exceed themselves in a certain way because they're not necessarily tied to architecture. But then he also kind of makes the point that once they're on their own, there's a less of a sense of a unity and the edifice or the monument as a whole suffers because you essentially have a thousand individual arts that are making up one space rather than something that is entirely coherent in and of itself because all of it is part of the one structure. Yeah, he's talking about whether architecture will have a revival Mm. and says, The great fortune of having an architect of genius may befall the 20th century, like Dante in the 13th, but architecture will never be the social, collective, dominant art that it was. The great poem, the great structure, the great masterwork of humanity will never again be built. It will be printed. And yeah, he talks about before that, the printing press of every poetry being subservient to architecture, Mm. music being subservient to architecture. And I love, he has a phrase where he said that in the sense of these arts being subject to it, that no issue except in the direction of architecture, um, it gushed forth through that art and its iliads assumed the form of cathedrals. Yeah, the, the great poets of that era became architects. Yeah, and so it's just fascinating. And I think just after this, we're going to talk a little bit about how... And it's funny, in some ways, we've lost it in poetry as well. I feel like we've just been casting off meaning left, right and centre. But that we used to have a language of symbols in art and architecture that you could easily point to. Yeah, I think in that we've lost a lot of... By our ability to tell a story without symbolism, Mm -hmm. we've lost a lot of our understanding of symbolism. And I'm going to quote another section on symbolism because I spotted it here. On the other hand, the great characteristic of popular architectures are the variety, progress, originality, opulence and perpetual movement. They have something human about them which they constantly mix with the divine symbolism under which they still occur. Hence, structures are accessible to every soul, to every intelligence, to every imagination. Though symbolic, they are easily comprehensible, like nature herself. I think to a great extent we've lost that ability to read architecture. Yeah, and I'm going to quote a section, and I think it's so funny because we both pulled out quotes, and this section is so dense that we actually have not pulled out any of the same quotes. Um, (laughs) That's brilliant. But yeah, there's two sections that specifically you can read in The Hunchback of Notre Dame that are just specifically about architecture. I think it's book three. There's a chapter just titled Notre Dame, and then... The following chapter is called A Bird's Eye View of Paris, which is all about just the art and architecture. And then the section, like I said, that we're quoting from is just a chapter called This Will Kill That. Yeah, it's chapter two in book five. Yeah. Pretty short. It took me like half an hour, maybe. And it's not necessarily tied to the story. So if you are just interested, I mean, you know, if you're interested in reading the, the story itself, it also won't spoil the story if you don't have time to read that just now. But if you do want to just dip into those architecture bits, it's scattered throughout, but those are two kind of large chunks where he goes into it in great detail. Yeah, and they're just beautifully written. They're really, really good. This is what I was saying, that like I was caught because I sort of resented him for stalling the story for so long. But at the same time, I felt like that was where his writing was at his best. So I didn't really want to hold it against him because I actually enjoyed those sections a lot. But anyway, so what I was saying about where art was kind of liberated from architecture and the effect that that had and I'm going to quote this section also because it it goes into detail about St. Peter's which is very relevant for where we are so he says nevertheless from the moment when architecture is no longer anything but an art like any other as soon as it is no longer the total art the sovereign art the tyrant art 
it has no longer the power to retain the other arts. So they emancipate themselves, break the yoke of architecture and take themselves off, each one in its own direction. Each one of them gains by this divorce. Isolation aggrandizes everything. Sculpture becomes statutory. The image trade becomes painting. The canon becomes music. One would pronounce it an empire dismembered at the death of its Alexander, and whose provinces become kingdoms. Hence Raphael, Michelangelo, Jean Joujon, Palestrina, those splendours of the dazzling 16th century. Farewell all sap, all originality, all life, all intelligence. It drags along a lamentable workshop mendicant from copy to copy. Michelangelo, who no doubt felt even in the 16th century that it was dying, had a last idea, an idea of despair, that titan of art piled the pantheon on the pantheon and made St. Peter's at Rome, a great work which deserved to remain unique, the last originality of architecture, the signature of a giant artist at the bottom of the colossal register of stone which was closed forever. With Michelangelo dead, what does this miserable architecture which survived itself in the state of a spectre do? It takes St. Peter in Rome, it copies it and parodies it. It is a mania, it is a pity. Each century has its St. Peter's of Rome. In the 17th century, the Val de la Grasse. In the 18th century, Saint Genevieve. Each country has its St. Peter's of Rome. London has one, Petersburg another, Paris has two or three. The insignificant testament, the last dotage of a decrepit grand art falling back into infancy before it dies. Which, like I said... It's very harsh. It's very, very harsh. Although it does kind of explain how he's saying that Gothic architecture is the pinnacle, and yet in the 16th century you have this like dazzling array of people because it's this moment where all of the other arts break free. Yeah, and he um, just describes it as like the last sunset as well. Yeah. Which I think is very telling in that the sunset is often the most beautiful part of the day. Yeah. Like I said, I certainly wouldn't write off everything after Michelangelo, but... Goodness, no, we'd be in trouble if we did. <laughs> but I do think it is really interesting that he's talking about how architecture can unify a culture and it reminded me of I was reading an article it was called to make Britain richer make Britain beautiful and it was talking about how investing in beautiful spaces like even just housing and streets like not even sacred spaces just the places where people live how investing in those and making those beautiful actually improves the economy and improves the standard of living and has all of these ramifications that people wouldn't expect. And it has some really interesting quotes in there. So it says things like, but the establishment fell in love with ugliness just as governments become more committed than ever to our well-being. <laughs> just not apparently when we are looking at things. Our politics doesn't notice the things we notice. So why did beauty cease to be a public good? Goes on to talk about how the fact that we don't have any kind of unifying form or how all of the new buildings like it's specifically talking about London and I think anyone who knows London they keep building these huge buildings and they all get hideous names like the gherkin or the hatchet because they're just sort of oblong obelisks in different directions and they don't have any coherency to them and he says welcome to London we believe nothing but this faddishness keeps the mind in the tumult of the here and now. Styles whose motifs have persisted expand our sense of time, granting, like the sea, a sense of perspective. The same phenomenon is apparent across the world. Despite a building boom unprecedented in human history, modern China has created no new Venice. Indeed, no new Shuzhou. Tourists everywhere now crush into the places built before the last century, vacationing being also a holiday for the eyes. But that tells us something. If we preserve it, beauty pays. Yeah, that's very telling. Mm. I think tying back into what we were saying earlier about architecture having once been like the overarching form, mm -hmm. um, I think because architecture has lost the way of displaying art. Like yeah. I think in these fabulous churches we see art and architecture intertwined so deeply that you can't read one without the other. Yeah. Like you have a plinth without a statue and it's an eyesore. Yeah. Like not quite an eyesore but you know what I mean. You know what belongs there and yet it is lacking. And then when we get to modern buildings they don't even have the plinth. There is no space 
for art. Mm -hmm. The art used to be this great expression. Mm -hmm. um, and yet when now art has gone so modernistic, <laughs> that sounds very dubious. There is some atrocious modern art, I think, as we all know, that we don't have beautiful spaces just to be beautiful. Art belongs in museums, kind of, or maybe on the wall of your home, but not yeah. so much. It definitely doesn't belong in your office foyer, in a certain way. Like Yeah, and even, even when it does, I am someone, I think Phoebe will back me up on this, that I will try to go out of my way to point out good examples of modern art and show that there are interesting, great things happening in certain parts. I often have this feeling when looking at more modern pieces where I'm like, oh, I can see what they're doing there. That's kind of interesting. But I don't leap to it. There's nothing in my, my soul that kind of goes, oh, yes, that, you know? Yeah. And so even like when it's... The very soul is lacking in it. Yeah, so even when something is not offensively bad yeah. or just plain ugly, that there isn't the same kind of emotional connection that I get when I look at something that... And, you know, I don't want to say the Pietà, because who can be Michelangelo? Like, I understand that, you know, who can be Mozart? It's the same kind of thing. That doesn't mean you can't enjoy lots of other types of music. Yeah. But that... Even like Caravaggio or... Yeah, there's a whole range of people. Like, your heart sort of leaps within you when you see them. And also, I think, to a certain sense, you can read them. Yeah. And they tell you something about what the artist is trying to say. Mm -hmm. And then because they're sacred pieces, they tell you something about your faith mm -hmm. and about you. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting about this in terms of architecture is that I was reading a really genuinely fascinating article called The Neuroscience of Architecture, The Good, the Bad and the Beautiful. It was an article about a research paper which was tracking eye movements when people were looking at certain buildings and certain facades and things like that and how that impacts our neurochemistry and that it actually does and that it you know kind of quantifiably does it says that the new sciences also cast a new light on the age-old topic of beauty it now seems that what we experience as beautiful is a shared perception of beneficial conditions in our environment we see beauty in a healthy meadow or fresh fruit for example whereas rotten fruit or a fire-swept meadow will likely be experienced as ugly beauty is not simply in the eye of the beholder as was once held it is the result of complex structural interaction between the viewer and the environment with significant impacts on our health and well-being and it goes on to say research also shows us that it is architects who are often in the minority about what constitutes good or beautiful design from a user's perspective eye tracking experiments reveal that built structures that follow the contemporary aesthetic of geometrical fundamentalism are often ignored as if they were not there other evidence shows that such structures can be stress-inducing and consequently degrade the quality of life of people who live around them. I love that so much. <laughs> and this kind of goes back to what I was saying about our experience of seeing um, more contemporary art. There is no small irony in this since it's maintained often by the same professionals that architecture is a subjective art form whose aesthetic quality is only in the eye of the beholder. When new fashionable projects are criticised by citizens as ugly, out of character or even anxiety inducing, such criticisms are often dismissed as mere opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Which... Yeah, that is so telling that actually, no, there can be objectively beautiful. And I think it's hilarious because it actually ties back to what Victor Hugo was saying. So in the first section, which was just about Notre Dame, I don't think you read this bit, no. Phoebe, but he says, fashions have wrought more harm than revolutions. They have cut to the quick. They have attacked to the very bone and framework of art. They have cut, slashed, disorganized, killed the edifice in the form as in the symbol in its consistency as well as in its beauty, and they have made it over, a presumption which neither time nor revolution have at least been guilty. They have audaciously adjusted in the name of good taste upon the wounds of Gothic architecture. 
Yeah, you can tell Victor Hugo's a big fan of the Gotham. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In that section, he's talking about the three things that are destroying architecture and their time, revolution, and fashion. So he then goes on to, the, he sums up, he says, Thus, to sum up the points which we have indicated, three sorts of ravages today disfigure Gothic architecture. Wrinkles and warts on the epidermis. This is the work of time. Deeds of violence, brutality, contusions, fractures. This is the work of the revolutions from Luther to Mirabeau. Mutilations, amputations, dislocation of the joints, restorations. This is the Greek... Roman and barbarian work of professors according to Vitruvius and Vignole. This magnificent art produced by the Vandals has been slain by the academics. The centuries, the revolutions, which at least devastate with impartiality and grandeur, have been joined by a cloud of school architects, licensed, sworn and bound by oath, defacing with discernment and choice of bad taste. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh, that's great. Talking of the revolution, it reminds me of something that our tour guide yesterday said. Mm -hmm. He was talking about the Baroque style, and he said that because it occurred, it was during the Counter Reformation, mm -hmm. and he said where Luther and the other Protestants were stripping the churches bare and taking out the statues, taking out the color. They go, oh, so you say no color, all the colors. You say no gold, all the gold. <laughs> no statues everywhere. Can we open a statue? Oh, one there, one. Yeah, <laughs> that was... kind of like excessive abundance of overreaction. Which I kind of there's a part of me that really loves. It's just. It's just great. Yeah. Like, yeah, and while we were talking about modern art and architecture and expressions of that, I think it is fair to say one of the good expressions of that mm -hmm. in, here in Rome is the chapel of the Irish College here, mm -hmm. which has these beautiful mosaics. They're quite recent, aren't they? Like yeah. 2010? Yeah. The altar is in an arch, mm -hmm. and there's a mosaic almost in, in a dome behind it of Irish saints, mm -hmm. um, and well, and Mary and John the Baptist, and it's it is modern. Mm -hmm. Like the faces are different to what you would otherwise expect, but it's also this beautifully crafted mosaic that actually shows artistry and skill. And yeah, and then you've got um, like Saint Bridget with like water flowing, and Saint Patrick with like the church and like all these symbols that we're accustomed to beautifully displayed. I do think it's telling that that is an example of beautiful art, but not so much of architecture. Mm. Like the only architecture is that dome, which isn't structural. Yeah. The actual, I think because they like, they would have refurbished it anyway. Yeah. So it's not a criticism of the space in any way. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that we don't have an example of, Arc and architecture combined in a modern way yeah. that we're aware of. Yeah, and that it feels distinctly 21st century. Uh, if you want more hope, I would also... I, I've i been following this for a while. There was someone who used the, the hashtag unbeigemyparish, oh, which was hilarious, which then I also found a kind of version of in the Liturgical Arts Journal, which has a whole series of articles on before and afters of churches being remodeled and repainted and texture and art added because that was one of the things we were saying is that you see these churches and they were so unafraid of having art everywhere whereas I think now we kind of isolate art and say well you're looking at this one picture now and then there's one picture over here whereas I think there's just such a, a beauty in embracing the idea of having art everywhere but I think what we're lacking is the fact that in order to do that now you would need to have so much meaning in everything um like there's also yeah. like prohibitiveness in like skill and expertise and money and interest in, yeah. in doing these things I do also think it's telling like even you have these beautiful domes mm -hmm. that still have these ornate paintings way up there where you can hardly see them yeah and they're almost it's like well it doesn't matter if you can see them or not they're there yeah and I think because to me that really replicates God's creation like Mother Angelica once talked about an experience where she was on an excursion I can't remember the context really but the I think she was with some of her sisters and they found this glade with a river flowing through it and the sun was shining and there was you know rainbow trout like glittering in the river and it was just beautiful 
and she was saying how like this existed before me and the sister showed up. So there was this like little glade of humanity that was giving glory to God without, it's that kind of Buddhist thing of like, if a tree falls in the forest and no, there's nobody there to hear it, does it make a sound? But we are saying it is like all of creation gives glory to God, whether we as humanity are even there to see it. And so in some ways, the idea that parts of the church that might never get seen still give glory to God and still send up this praise. Yeah, it's incredible. That in that small way, we are trying to replicate God's creation. And I think Victor Hugo has a little bit to say on why we don't do that or why that's so hard to bring back in that, again, he's talking about architectural printing Mm -hmm. and which one is going to come back. And says, architecture is dead, irrevocably dead, killed by the printed book, killed because it is less endurable, killed because it is more costly. Every cathedral costs millions. Imagine now the cost necessary to rewrite the architectural book, the cost of rebuilding those countless edifices and spreading them once more over the land. I think that's kind of part of what we're saying, in that Mm -hmm. there is also a massive cost element involved, and without the divine inspiration, Mm -hmm. you can't put that kind of money into it. Yeah, absolutely. The other element that we were saying that we've really lost is this language of symbolism, and how much that impacts our ability to make art, and even our structure of architecture like one of the coolest things that Elizabeth Lev pointed out was how you know the Romans made these triumphal arches and then how that shape was put into churches yeah that particularly in Santa Maria Maggiore where yeah they've got this triumphal arch and the story that they've written where the Romans would have written the story of like the success and triumph in battle Mm -hmm. they have written again in picture format the story of the success and triumph of Christ and the incarnation of Christ which was just like such a mind-blowing beautiful like boom here you go yeah but then we've seen so many angels holding palm leaves over depictions of saints that's meant to symbolize the the palm of victory because they've won the race and they've come first because they're martyrs and so every time you see a palm leaf you're thinking of a martyr every time you see the color red you're thinking of a martyr you know that you can have these languages and of of color and like symbols and natural symbols and the position and and every little motif can mean something or the way that in Santa Maria Maggiore she was explaining that the types of pillars were chosen because they were the feminine style columns and that they yeah, were they've got the curly hair on top of the woman's, the woman's form, form yeah and and so that every part of everything could be chosen to serve a particular means and a particular end that yeah, and that even like the form was particular like the spacing between the columns was like four times or something yeah the column width and then the spacing the other way was maybe eight times the column width that kind of exact precision of everything means something and the whole space is cohesive mm-hmm. yeah but anything that you can look to has a symbolic meaning and i think in some ways We were talking about how, like, the printing press takes over from this. In some ways, language retained the artistic symbolism for quite a while, that you could write a poem in which someone gets a palm and the people reading it might know what that means. And I think we seem to just step further and further away from those things so that it's harder and harder to have meaning. And it was funny, I brought this up with Elizabeth Lev as well, that there is, I think it was, yeah, the Harvard professor of architecture wrote about Notre Dame. This was a wonderful opportunity to rebuild in a new style because the ceilings had been, and I quote, overburdened with meaning, which, as I was saying, yeah, that's certainly something that we need to, you know, that we're trying to get away from in the current age is... is oh, we can't have more than one meaning. Well, just that, like, anyone in our current era might be overburdened with meaning. <laughs> which I think is funny, because then we spend so long in school dissecting pieces and trying to devolve meaning of after meaning after meaning. Yeah, and so... Yeah, that this almost fear of having meaning is just so mind-blowing in the context of when you see these great buildings that, like you said, I, I'm not going to say overburdened because that's that's negative, but someone else described the ceilings, that to them the saddest part of the ceilings being burnt was that they had been soaked with thousands of years of prayer, that 
the idea that the prayers went up and were soaked into those ceilings. You That's know? incredible. That, if anything, meaning is something that we cannot have enough of. <laughs> it, it could be so inspiring to regain that sense of meaning in what we're doing. But that we were also discussing this on the tour, that like how almost impossible it feels like it would be to recreate this in this modern era because there is no cohesive sense of meaning. You know, not only is architecture gone, but like the core ideas of Christianity are gone, which I would say Victor Hugo was very, very anti-Catholic by the end of his life, so I'm not sure he would necessarily contest that, but that when you lose that kind of core foundation of orientation, like we said at the start where Michelangelo oriented Rome towards Peter, that it's the London now where you have like all of your different types of skyscrapers to their different idols of companies and gods and data and... Yeah, and that all, because all of those idols are limited... Mm-hmm. what is built for them is also limited yeah and that actually it's maybe fitting to close this out on just a final quote from that section of Notre Dame where he's talking about how the press that giant machine which incessantly pumps all the intellectual sap of society belches forth without pause fresh materials for its work the whole human race is on the scaffoldings each mind is a mason the humblest fills his hole or places his stone retif de le breton brings his hod of plaster every day a new course rises independently of the original and the individual contribution of each writer assuredly it is a construction which increases and piles up in endless spirals there also are confusion of tongues incessant activity indefatigable labor eager competition of all humanity refuge promised to intelligence a new flood against an overflow of barbarians it is the second tower of Babel of the human race. And if that is not <laughs> true of modern society, <laughs> I don't know what is. But I think in order to go on enjoying the beautiful landscapes of Rome, Phoebe and I, were going to have to round this up now. Yeah, definitely. And come to a crashing halt by asking each other what we're enjoying at the moment. And I'm not allowed to say buildings? (laughs) Well, I think I'm going to have to say that everything previous to this holiday is a bit of a blur for me right now. Did I have a life? Did I have anything going on except this horrendous food poisoning? So I'm trying to think what I'm enjoying at the moment. You could talk about buildings. I could talk about a book if you wish. Yeah, I'm I'm enjoying Rome. Who wouldn't enjoy Rome? (laughs) I know, it's great. Let's see... I was watching an anime earlier mm-hmm. this week in preparation of going to Japan. Of course. But it's called Erased. It's on Netflix, so it's pretty accessible. And it's just really pretty and quite clever. And it's not, like, super happy, but it's not too dark either. It's not too weird in the way some animes can be. But, yeah, no, it's just a really nicely told story. Cool. Uh, I'm only about three episodes into it, so I'm looking forward to picking the rest of that up again. And then I've also been reading another George MacDonald, because that just seems to be my life at the moment. <laughs> so any time I'm lacking in something to read, I just go and read another George MacDonald. So this one was called The Life of Claire Skymer, and it was just this beautifully told story about this foundling boy who's rescued by a parson couple in Italy actually when his parents have been killed by an earthquake and his interaction with animals and his pure honesty Mm -hmm. and it's a real way of writing a person who challenges you without saying oh everybody should be like that Mm. because you can see very easily how if all our world was like him nobody would get anything done but there was just this beautiful description of this boy who's maybe now 12 and he's wandering from town to town begging and sleeping rough but so honest that he won't steal Mm -hmm. and he sleeps in the lee of a gypsy tent but he leaves before morning because he doesn't want to be tempted to take anything that they offer him that might be stolen and it's just yeah that beautiful way of showing a connection with animals, like this great loyalty to his dog that makes him turn away work if they say, oh, you have to get rid of the dog. Like that great loyalty yeah. and that great honesty 
which isn't practical, but it's challenging and it's striking. Yeah. I have actually remembered something I did enjoy recently. I went to the cinema. Which, oh, yeah. Which is relatively unusual for me. I went to see Sisters Brothers, which is a Western. It's a kind of like a, a twisted Western. It's not your usual one. It stars Joaquin Phoenix and John C. Riley, Jake Gyllenhaal. And it's... I, I'm not going to say, because it's not like super enjoyable, but it's very engaging and very well done. And so I enjoyed that very much. And I, yeah, I would recommend it. It's got some kind of brutal scenes in it. It's, so it's not P-rated? No, it's not P-rated. It's not rated for Phoebe. But it has a lot of very realistic elements in it, while also being maybe very slightly a bit of a kind of a dark comedy as well. So yes, I really enjoyed that. And I want to thank everyone for listening. I'm being very optimistic when I listen back to this. Or Obviously, we're staying in a lovely apartment in Rome, but we have a lot less control over the sound quality and the noises going past outside. Yeah, there's the... been a shutter swinging open and shut for the entire episode. Yeah, so which if I'm... you can hear that, we're very sorry. Yeah, so apologies if the sound quality is not as good. Thanks for bearing with us and thanks for coming on the journey with us. And thanks very much for listening. Thanks for everyone who's at the... There's been some people who've reached out and I really, really appreciate that. It's really wonderful and very uplifting. And yeah, if you can rate and subscribe and leave reviews and any of those things that kind of engage and and help promote the podcast, we really, really appreciate it. And other than that, I think it's just time to say goodbye. Bye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.